Hello, and welcome back to the Glossy Week in Review podcast. I'm your host, senior fashion reporter, Danny Parisi, and I'm here once again with Glossy's editor-in-chief, Jill Manoff. How's it going, Jill? Hi, Danny. So good. How are you? I'm doing very well as well. Uh, because because we've got a fun episode. Uh, We're going to be talking about some of the interesting bits from LVMH's earnings this week and what that has to say about luxury fashion, which you can guess is extremely resilient to some of the inflation stuff we've been talking about. Um, We're also going to talk about Tom Brown being named the new head of the CFDA uh, after Tom Ford left in May. And then finally, we're going to talk about Farfetch expanding its concierge service and some of the interesting things about around like those super, super high-end private clients who you like, you're, you don't even know their names. Let's start with LVMH. So they had their earnings on Tuesday, obviously LVMH, massive, massive company. Um, and maybe unsurprisingly, they're Earnings were very, very good. The sales were up like 20% from last year. They're like nearly $20 billion in quarterly revenue or something. It's it's crazy. Or euros, I guess. But recently, that conversion has become very easy because the dollar and the euro are so close together. So, um, yeah, I feel like we've talked about it on this podcast, Jill, but the luxury companies are... Uh, people often talk about them being recession-proof or at the very least very insulated from things like price increases because the average person buying a Louis Vuitton bag doesn't care too much if the price goes up a couple hundred dollars or something because they're also filthy rich already. Um, but what did you what did you take from that? The LVMH is kind of the first big luxury company that's that has earnings and and Hermes and Caring are later this month. So this is a kind of a bellwether. Um, what did you think of uh, some of the information that came out? Yeah, like you said, I didn't think it was surprising. Luxury, it's not recession proof, I would say. Um, there were some analysts that were talking about, okay, all is fine and dandy now, but uh, wait till Q4 is when some of them are saying um, it's going to, the tough times, tougher times are going to hit for this category. Um, it's interesting on the earnings call, um, Jean-Jacques Gioni, let's see how that, that's how it's pronounced. The financial, chief financial officer of LVMH um, was really just basically saying, like, we've talked about in the past, you and I, about... Um, I think that LVMH and or other large conglomerates have really uh, poo-pooed the idea of recession. Um, But this fellow said, you know, when things are announced in advance, they usually don't happen because the economic agents take measures to avoid them. Anyway, um, I think that that's a little bit glossing over the current (laughs) situation. I think a lot of brands are feeling the heat right now. Um, But yeah, wow, um, the numbers are definitely showing amazing growth where there was maybe a weaker spot was in um, Asia didn't see the double digit growth over the last the first nine months of the year it's a two percent and really it was just mostly about Q2 and all of those lockdowns and and nobody was shopping forget that Um, but yeah I love I love the the fashion buzz Dior uh, L Louis Vuitton, a lot of handbag buying there. <laughs> no surprise. Yeah, yeah I, I I think it's a hard G, by the way. I think it's Guioni, but I'm not sure. Um, I bet you're but right. But yeah, he, 
No, he he had a very funny quote where he was like, despite everything going on, like the demand for our brands remains very vigorous and very vigorous is kind of like an understatement, I think, because it was their earnings, I think, were a full or almost a full billion dollars above analyst expectations. I think it was like the analyst expectation was 19.1 billion and their actual earnings were 19.8. It's like that's a huge I mean, it's a big win for them. Um, But yeah, it's it's. It's interesting that idea that like they've kind of tried to downplay the idea of there being a recession or that it really making much of an impact. And at least for them, it has not. But the 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 disparity between their growth in Europe and the US compared to Asia is, is super interesting. I feel like the narrative the last couple of years has been that China particularly, but also Korea and, and Japan have been really big for a lot of these brands. And now it seems like that's slowing down at least a little bit. And possibly just short term because of, like you said, the lockdowns. Yeah. And it's interesting. I mean, maybe Q4 will hit some brand. I'll be interested to see Q4 because uh, in Q3 specifically, like Asia saw nearly the growth that it saw uh, last year, I believe. So anyway, it seems like Q2 is where it really got hit. Um, And as things reopen, I would think that that would kind of compensate for troubles in other markets. Um, Europe up 43% in the first nine months. Amazing. And I think I mentioned this already on the Glossy podcast, but, um, you know, we talked, I was just in Paris, but like the amount of shopping that's happening there, like, and the lines outside of the luxury stores like Dior, um, there was mention on the recent earnings, uh, yesterday about the um the opening of the the Dior store um it's a flagship uh it was right by my hotel but yeah uh lines to get in uh spending everyone walking out with bags there was and there's definitely that really we're going to talk about later in today's episode that like one-on-one personal service when you wait in line you go into the store somebody's there to kind of walk you through what do you want to see here are some examples let me help you it's amazing. So anyway, it felt like luxury fashion's booming. Uh, physical retail it is back. Anyway, it was all the good things. Yeah, you're right. I mean, and, and there the last month or two, there's been a ton of tourism to Europe, uh, particularly among fashion-loving people for obvious reasons. Like all of the European fashion weeks were back in, with, a, with a vengeance. Um, I'm sure that contributed to it. And the lack of tourism, I actually think I saw several analysts saying that it was like tourism to Europe was a, a big part of that massive growth there. And conversely, lack of tourism to and from Asia probably was a contributing factor yeah, there and as well. The strength of the dollar. I think that some people probably took trips to Europe specifically to shop and get cheaper goods. I just came back from Canada. I forget if I mentioned this, but it was very fun buying things there for, you know, $50 and then getting the credit card statement that it only cost 35. That is a great feeling. So like I, nice. I think that's definitely a strong um motivating factor for people to to travel for shopping purposes. But again, like the I feel like the narrative for the last couple of years has been like the idea of the wealthy Chinese tourist traveling to Paris or something or New York, spending a bunch of money on Chanel or whatever, and then flying back uh, sometimes in like one day or something um, or, you know, for a weekend. Uh, and that's, I guess, just slowing down a little bit. Totally. Even um, in terms of other categories that are or brands that are resonating for LVMH, um, Ramoa was pointed out for um, strong demand driven by increase in summer travel. So again, travel's driving sales of all kinds. 
Yeah, definitely. Um, cool. Let's talk about Tom Brown. Uh, so Tom Brown is taking over as the uh, chair chairperson of the CFDA. Um, Tom Ford stepped down in May, and I got to call something out, which is Jill, in May, we did a podcast in which we talked about Tom Ford stepping down and who was going to fill his position. And we talked about Aurora James and a couple other people. And you said Tom Brown. And I was like, oh, I hadn't thought of Tom Brown. That's such a good pick. And we talked about Tom Brown for a minute. And so we, mostly you, but we were correct in that oh prediction. God. I don't even remember predicting that, but go me. <laughs> yeah, I was. I remembered that we talked about it, but I did not remember who we talked about. And I just went back and listened to it like 20 minutes ago, like 20 minutes before we're recording this and was listening. And you were like, what about Tom Brown? Yeah, he, he's been around for a while. He's got the respect and everything. You know, we had a whole thing about it. But we and we were we were prophets because Tom Brown is taking over, and all the same reasons um, that we said he'd be a good fit in that episode, I think, are still true. He's his brand's been around since like 2003 or something. He's a very, I think, iconic American designer. Um, he's not like super super mainstream or or like mass market. You know, he's definitely still like a luxury fashion designer, but he's been around for a while. Um, all those things I think contribute. He's another Tom also. So there's, they don't even need to change a lot of the, uh, you know, the stationary that much. Um, they just have to add an H and change the last name. Uh, <laughs> shortcut. <laughs> yeah. So what, what, but what do you think? Um, do, do a lot of those, those same, I imagine a lot of those same reasons still hold for you? Yeah, and this really this position's really about steering the organization. Um I mean, Tom Ford really had his work cut out for him during uh maintaining holding this spot during the pandemic, and he did a lot of great things with a common thread and and kind of keeping these these designers afloat um or helping to. Um so really instrumental um in terms of his his role um and, and support there, but um yeah, Tom Brown, I wonder if I was just wishful thinking with that prediction. I'm a fan, and um, I do think that he plays into a lot of what, in my eyes, the CFDA stands for, which, um, you know, it's almost the, the tradition of fashion, like um, the the um, craftsmanship, He his shows, like it's all about glamour and drama, and he still does a show. Like it's definitely some traditional ways. Um, but also, yeah, the, evolving. There's a lot of um, like gender neutrality, like um, women, like guys in skirts, women wearing those ties. Like, you know, it's like he, he definitely plays into emerging trends um, and forward thinking. And I like what he had to say um, at the announcement of this, just really, um, I don't know, serious about the responsibility here um, and uh, talking about giving back to the industry after being in the industry for 20 years, um, which, yeah, that's cool. Anyway, I like him. Yeah. And and benefiting from the CFDA for a long time, as, as a lot of American designers do. I kind of think of him taking over. Maybe I've been watching too much House of the Dragon, but sort of like you know, a king who reigns during like times of trouble and tumult and then like a peacetime king. He's kind of taking over the CFDA right as things are a little bit calmer. It's not quite as crazy as it was for Tom Ford. Like you said, most of Tom Ford's tenure was like, I think three years or something. Most of that was pandemic time. Like he started right before um, and left kind of just as things were sort of getting back to normal somewhat. So Tom Brown definitely has a little bit of an easier like landscape to work with. Um, 
There wasn't too much specifics, I think, uh, at least uh, by the, we're recording this Wednesday. Uh, by today, there's not a ton of specifics on like if he's got any specific priorities other than just kind of the general mandate of the CFDA, like, you know, championing American designers and doing all the things that they the CFDA already does. One other thing about um, Tom Brown, uh, he you're right. He's definitely like a little bit more of a traditional designer, like definitely boundary pushing in the like the gender neutrality stuff but he one thing he's notab- notably not is like streetwear at all uh which is to- which is totally fine but i i had wondered a little bit if they would try to bring in someone who maybe kind of crossed over those lines of like more traditional fashion and maybe kind of street sneakery whatever you want to call it kind of fashion and i think they could have and and the cfda i think has been open to those kinds of designers, but they did not go with somebody in that world for for the top position. And that's okay. But just that was a possibility I had kind of been thinking yeah, about. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, yeah. And it's interesting that, you know, it's a two-year, it's really regarded as a temporary position. So it's like, I mean, <laughs> not a lot of permanence here. We'll, we'll give them a try. <laughs> but I do feel like respected in the industry for sure um and like you said a cfda kind of golden boy like he's got he's won the menswear designer of the year he's actually up for it this year which is announced in november it'll be funny if he does or does not win i guess <laughs> either way is weird yeah or do um, you recuse yourself or, or abstain or whatever it's called if you're the chair or whatever i, I mean it's probably too late now but i wonder what the if there's any sort of rules around that but yeah he's won i think like three times or something um yeah definitely like a known entity in this in the cfda world um one other thing i don't want to like uh this is not tom brown's fault or anything he's a great pick i do think it's a was a little bit of a missed opportunity for some maybe some diversity um in just like i said there's now probably more toms who have been in this position than uh like women of color so yeah yeah exactly so again the cfda does do a lot of great work on this tom brown is not a bad pick but i i that was another thing where i was like wondering if they would maybe try to um diversify a little bit of who has held that position but again if it if it does end up being a shorter term thing i think we talked about this in the in the episode about tom ford like it's always supposed to be kind of like a like you said a couple year position um diane von Furstenberg held it for like 13 years though so that was not quite as short um but if they do get back to a cycle of maybe like um somebody just holding the position for two or three years and stepping down, like I, I think that would be better for um, allowing what, like one of the names we floated in this last episode was Aurora James. I think she would have been a great pick. Um, and if Tom Brown does only stick around for two years, maybe Aurora, Aurora James takes it next, and then she steps down and somebody else. You know, that might be better just for like, you know, having some variety there. For sure, um, good perspective from his point. I don't know if. Um like Tom Ford and DVF maybe came to be or or they grew their company in quite the same way. Like I like his story in that he what, like started as an independent brand. I think it was like opened a store in, or I might be off a little bit, Lower East Side and like with like five pieces or something like very yeah. small and like saw huge growth last year, but obviously was picked up by Xenia Group, which went public very recently. Um, so, I mean, he's kind of really seen both sides of the of the industry or um, has a good perspective in terms of that type of diversity. But I, I hear you on the white men. 
<laughs> That's the thing. It's like, I don't want to like lay the blame at like his, obviously not as his feet, but also just like, there are many like individually very well-qualified white men who I don't think anyone could say is like not right for the job, but it's sort of like when you just look at the, in totality, when you look at everyone who's ever held that position, it's a little, it's noticeable. Um, and then last thing on Tom Brown before we move on, as much as I want to be open-minded, still can't get into shorts with a suit. I, <laughs> I, I cannot accept that look. I, I want to be accepting of a lot of outre fashions and I just, I, it doesn't look right to me. But anyway, still still respect him. Angus um, Young. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, that's like, that's what I think. It looks like a schoolboy outfit a little bit. Um, anyway. So final thing, let's talk about Farfetch's concierge service. So um, Farfetch obviously caters to like a very high-end customer. They're, they're sort of the luxury, like luxury Amazon or Amazon for luxury, whatever you want to call that. I don't know if they've specifically used that term, but I've heard that term floating around uh, about them. Um, they have a concierge service that they launched in 2017 that's invite only, and it's only for like the tippy top, like most, like, wealthiest highest spending um customers that they have and it's like they get in touch with you personally and you can ask them to find you like specific things and they'll go out and find some million dollar watch or something like you know it, it's it's made for those like very very exclusive private clients the news this week is that they're opening that to all of their like capitalized private clients which is any customer who spends more than twelve thousand dollars a year um, which is definitely a lot of money and that's still very exclusive, but I think that really opens up the, uh, net of like who now qualifies for this service. It's, I'm sure there are way more people who spend $12,000 a year on Farfetch than there were just these like super, super high end invite only. So I'm not, there's no specific numbers, but I would guess that there's probably a lot more people who now have access to this service than before. Um, and the reason I wanted to talk about this is I feel like there's always a danger with like exclusive stuff like this for super wealthy clients. Um, when you open it up like that, losing some of that exclusivity, which is funny, $12,000 a year is so much. So that's still very exclusive, but just comparatively, you I know, there's a lot more invited. people in there. Yeah. I am certainly not, but there's <laughs> a lot of people now are. So anyway, what are your thoughts, Jill? I think that if this is a way for Farfetch to keep a piece of the pie as luxury spending like we talked about is booming and we see um like resale sites and auction sites auctions in particular like anyway a lot of these big sales are happening and i think they just want to get in on it because i don't know uh be to be able to find something anything that you want for these high spend clients a lot of these things that they've mentioned that they've assisted the high ultra high spend clients with are you know five hundred thousand dollar rolexes and 2.4 million dollar how do you say it malay meal watch anyway i don't know how to say it m-i-l-l-e the fact of the matter is these are it's big bucks um and other companies are offering similar services i mean it wasn't specific to luxury but it included luxury with like even back in the day with Jet Black, which came and gone, but also Attentive launched a concierge service, which um, it kind of spans the gamut in terms of what they're finding. There's the editorialist, which does it via text message. Um, and the idea for them is they are luxury fashion. Their thing is, we'll find you anything you want. So um, it's a play, it's a 
competitive play, I think, as as other luxury retailers, e-tailers are offering this. And also, yes, as other, I, I want to say the auction resale world are, are doing doing similar things um, in terms of this, this price point. Um, what do you think? Yeah, I, I think that's true. There's a lot of services out there. Um, Farfetch, I know, wants to be kind of like the one-stop shop for a lot of these things, like for the maybe like within the tier of people who can af- afford luxury fashion, there is kind of like normal people who ha- who can afford it, who are not those like invite only clients and maybe don't even spend $12,000 a year to qualify. And they just shop the site and do all that stuff. But Farfetch wants to also cater to the, the super high end people who would not go to like Amazon luxury stores or something. Um, and the the thing I'm wondering though is like I have no idea what Farfetch's like resources behind the scenes are for this concierge service, but opening it up to that many people, um, all of whom now have the ability to like uh, have a one on one thing with a concierge person and ask them for like these super rare, presumably hard to find things that will take time and effort to dig up. I'm like I wonder what the impact will be on the whole experience. Um, again, something I will never experience. I am not in that tax bracket. But uh, for those like super high-end people who are used to this service being like this private thing that they just can use and it, it just works, like I wonder if there will be any noticeable impact there. Or on the other hand, Farfetch is a humongous company and has a ton of money. So I'm sure they've anticipated this and probably have done some investment in preparation. But I definitely think it's a it's a big change. Agree. It's it's a big undertaking. And I think that's probably why they waited so long to roll it out to a larger pool, um, pool of people to to be able to pull in these associates or experts or stylists or whatever the heck they are. Um, I would think for them, you know, this day and age when everything is accessible online, maybe it's getting easier for anyone to source anything. But of course, time is money. And the luxury shopper is not going to sit there and scrounge, whereas maybe this person will. <laughs> well, this person yeah. will. And there is a, a a psychological benefit, too, of like just knowing that you're in this invite-only private thing and you don't have to go dig something up yourself. You can just have like your far-fetched minion go find it for you. <laughs> um, I'm sure there I, I think there is probably a little bit of uh, a psychological element there that that makes that appealing. Um, feeling like you're in a little bit of a club or something. And now it's like the there's no mystery now of like who can use this. It's $12,000. You spend $12,000, you get the service. And it kind of like removes a little bit of the mystique maybe. I don't know how many people using this service cared about that, but I'm sure it's not zero. Um, <laughs> you think when they're recruiting these associates, they said looking for far-fetched. <laughs> Farfetch minions. <laughs> <laughs> I doubt they call them that, but maybe. Oh my um, gosh. But it's interesting that this is service related and um, type of a customer, high end customer loyalty, because we've been hearing from like My Teresa and Matches Fashion, a lot of what they're doing for their high spend customers are um, like experiences and they're doing these uh, very exclusive dinners, which nobody really hears about beyond this group, or they're taking them to these like, what was it when when somebody did a bell to the ballet where there was like an opportunity to talk to the dancers and choreographers and it was just oh so exclusive so anyway it's interesting that this is part of shopping 
Yeah. Do, do you remember um, someone who came to one of our glossy like summits or something? I forget where she worked, but at some company that catered like exclusively to these kinds of like ultra, ultra rich people. And she was talking about one of the big things that they want is like total like privacy and discretion. You know, they like they didn't want their names or email. They didn't want to like receive an email. It was like call my like assistant or something like by a human being will call my assistant, write my name down in like a book made of paper, like not in a spreadsheet or something. Um, although I'm sure they're in spreadsheets. I, I feel like that's another component of that, like super high end customer is just wanting that like very personal, um, kind of experience, uh, personal and private. And again, just like opening it up to a ton of people. I don't know if that loses any bit of that personality. I'm sure I, I don't want to speculate even. I don't want Farfetch to be mad at me. I'm sure they've done a lot of preparation, but I do think that's a, an element of of what that kind of customer wants. Yeah, but I mean, almost it is like Batu tradition, but like on steroids. Like it just, just reminds you of like the in-store clienteling and calling that, yeah. that customer directly and giving them that ultra amazing service. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, it's all speculative for me because I'm nowhere near <laughs> being in that, any of those <laughs> any, fun, any of those circles. But <laughs> no. Yeah, must be nice. Um, but I think that's all the time we have. Um, Jill, thank you so much. This is always so fun. Uh, for those of you listening, you should absolutely give us a rating and a review if you're enjoying the Glossy Podcast. Um, you can do that on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, wherever you're listening to this. That really does help us out a lot. And if you haven't, you should subscribe to the Glossy Podcast because every Friday, Jill and I are talking about the week in review. And also every Wednesday, Jill or I are interviewing uh, interesting industry insider people. Um, Jill, who's our next interviewee? Well, the next interviewer is you. Hey, hey. So it's Nate Checkett. Oh, my episode's up. You're up. Nate, yeah, Nate Checkett's from Roan. I interviewed him from his home office slash gym, uh, which was very fun. We talked about all sorts of retail and DTC e-commerce stuff, um, particularly about how a, a DTC brand can grow now compared to how they were able to grow. Uh, like 10 years ago during the DTC boom. So a super interesting conversation um, a couple weeks back at this point, but it was it's still vivid in my mind's eye. If you are interested in hearing that, you should give the Glossy Podcast a subscribe. And Jill, thanks again for being here. Thanks so much. 